Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week's podcast is about the Arab and Islamic world and the war in Gaza. My guest is Sanam Bakil, Director of the Middle East Programme at Chatham House here in London. The Arab and Islamic worlds are united in their denunciations of Israeli actions in Gaza and in their calls for an immediate ceasefire. But can they turn words into action? The war in Gaza has provoked mass demonstrations across the Muslim world with huge crowds turning out in capitals as far apart as Jakarta, Cairo and Istanbul. Arab and Muslim leaders have also been active. There was an unprecedented summit meeting in Riyadh earlier this month, which brought together the leaders of the Arab League and the Organization of Islamic Cooperation. The pictures coming out of the summit certainly suggested unprecedented unity. Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia personally greeted President Ibrahim Raisi of Iran. Here's Mohammed bin Salman addressing the summit. This is a humanitarian catastrophe that proved the failure of the international community and the Security Council to put an end to Israel's gross violations of international laws and the international humanitarian law and proved the dual standards adopted by the world that will undermine peace and security of the world. This requires us to concerted efforts. Others present at the meeting included the leader of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, who until recently has been something of a pariah in the Arab world. Another guest was President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, who's long had uneasy relations with both MBS and Assad. I was in Turkey over the weekend for a meeting organized by Chatham House and the Koch Group. After the discussions, I sat down with Dr. Sanem Vakil of Chatham House. I started by asking her about that summit of Arab and Islamic leaders. Are they really as united on Gaza as they seem? Well, the optics would suggest they are united. But from that summit and the statement that emerged along with some of the reporting, there is not as much unity as there should be. Of course, there has been unity over prioritization of humanitarian aid, calling for a ceasefire, but there are divergences among Arab states in particular, alongside Iran, for example. There were calls led by Algeria to boycott Israel more broadly, impose an oil embargo. The Iraqis have a particularly interesting stance where, because of their close ties with Iran, 
They are also being quite critical of Israel and also prioritizing a ceasefire and humanitarian aid, but would like harsher measures taken. Whereas you have a block of five Arab states, Egypt, Jordan, Qatar, the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, that perhaps see themselves as more moderate, um, have direct or indirect ties with Israel, and hope to play either an immediate or long-standing role in helping the Palestinians, providing humanitarian aid, but also being part of what will be a political settlement. And how realistic do you think those aspirations are? Do you think at the moment they're feeling a bit impotent or they're just standing on the sidelines waiting for their moment? I think that they are taking their time. They don't want to be at the front and center of this crisis. Of course, They've been called out by their people for not having prioritized the Palestinian issue. We've seen protests across the Arab world in support of Palestine and against Israel's military campaign in Gaza. So I think they're playing a short-term multilateral game. And longer term, I think that these countries will be very important in incentivizing and perhaps even underwriting a political settlement The West is not necessarily prioritizing this conflict. There's distraction with Ukraine. There's elections coming in many countries next year. And so I think that many Arab states will have a responsibility and an opportunity through this crisis should they take it. Yeah. And how much or little is it actually a threat to them domestically? I was very struck at the beginning of the conflict when emotions were running high, and they're still running very high for obvious reasons, the Egyptians authorized a demonstration and then it sort of spilled into kind of having an anti-Sisi regime character to it. So do they feel they're slightly walking a tightrope? Well, of course, they're not all in the same predicament. I think that the Jordanians and the Egyptians are in much more of a position where they have security concerns. Jordan has a very large Palestinian population that is rightfully incensed. Queen Rania has been advocating in favor of humanitarian aid and a ceasefire very regularly. And the Egyptians, because of their shared border and their long history, are also in an uncomfortable position, nor do they want the Sinai to become the new home of Palestinians in Gaza. So the protests that we have seen have been quite interesting. And you spoke rightly to the fact that Egyptians took the opportunity to actually almost thank the Palestinians for their right to protest. And they very quickly pivoted and complained about bread and the economy and all of their own challenges. And this is a tricky time for Sisi. He's supposedly embarking on elections in December, and he is indeed walking a tightrope, as are the Jordanians. Broadly, the Gulf states have different dynamics. Don't have many demonstrations there. No, uh, I mean, there were some protests in Bahrain. I think that in the UAE and Saudi Arabia, the outpouring of anger is very much managed, contained on social media, channeled in more, let's say, constructive ways to provide aid and to express frustration in very carefully constructive dialogue. They're not breaking ties. The Emiratis, they've said it front and center. Normalization will continue, but, you know, they all see a pragmatism in these dynamics that will be important to continue regardless of this crisis. Yeah. Here in Turkey, which Erdogan has over his many years in power, often been very strident in his condemnations of Israel over Gaza, previous Gaza conflicts. And 
he seemed to be actually kind of slightly warming to Netanyahu. And then, bang, this happened. And you've had huge demonstrations here in Istanbul. What role, if any, do you think the Turks play? Well, Erdogan played a very interesting flip-flop over the past month because he was quite cautious. And then he clearly took a much more strident and critical position of Israel, also withdrawing their ambassador. And restoring ties after the rupture was quite difficult, finding the right entry point. So this is quite a move. And it comes on this backdrop of a broader regional diplomacy. Everyone's normalized ties with each other. So the fact that Erdogan has taken this position is really reflective of popular anger here in Turkey, frustration that is longstanding that goes back to previous wars, 2009, 2014. And we heard a lot of it at this conference. I mean, almost to a man and a woman, the Turkish participants were saying, you know, how can the West lecture us on Ukraine and let stuff like the Israelis are doing go by? This definitely exposes... Western countries and policymakers to criticism of double standards and hypocrisy that have long existed but are being made worse by a war in Ukraine that is wholeheartedly defended by the West and what is perceived in the Middle East to be a green light to Israel to kill Palestinians and without respect for international law and human rights. And so that is unleashing all sorts of grievances. True. And another aspect of that summit in Riyadh was Iran, and the president of Iran actually being escorted in by Mohammed bin Salman. What do you make of that? Really rather extraordinary. I was in Riyadh in mid-October, and there was some speculation in meetings I had. You know, the Saudi-Iranian rapprochement is new. It's only a number of months old. And I was told that the ball is in Iran's court. It was Rice's turn to reciprocate because Saudi Arabia's foreign minister, Faisal bin Farhan, had been to Tehran already. And I was surprised that the opportunity came so quickly. It really speaks to, I think, Iran's pragmatism right now, recognizing that after many years of very tense and difficult ties with the Gulf states and particularly Saudi Arabia, I think they acknowledge that these diplomatic ties are fragile and it's important to keep them going despite all of the concerns in the region. So I think it was the perfect opportunity for Raisi, the president of Iran, to come to Riyadh because it was under the cover of these double summits. He had some pomp and circumstance, but it wasn't the full state visit. And they could, you know, show solidarity on humanitarian issues, where, of course, Iran plays a broader incendiary role in supporting Hamas and other groups that could destabilize the region further. Yeah. And digging into that a bit, there was a very interesting article in the FT by my colleague Najma based in Tehran saying that the reaction of the Iranian public was rather different to this, partly because of their hostility of quite a lot of them to their own regime and the way they feel their regime has instrumentalized the Palestinian issue. Is that something you see as well? Absolutely. Najma is a fantastic correspondent and I think she has a really unique perspective in reflecting what is taking place in Iran. Iranians have long been very frustrated that the regime doesn't reflect or respect their views on foreign policy. There has been a sort of long-standing chant that Iranians use in protests as they say, not Gaza, not Lebanon, I give my life for Iran. And it really speaks to the decades-long frustration of Iranian resources being channeled abroad rather than spent back home. So that distance between 
the Iranian street, if you will, and the regime, I think, is quite profound. And of course, in the backdrop of Iran's protests of last year, after the death of the young Mahsa Jina Amini, Iranians are looking for other alternative avenues to distance themselves from the regime that really is holding steadfast against popular frustration. They're not showing any willingness to reform anywhere, and it creeps out in all sorts of ways. Yeah. And that does actually raise an interesting question to me, because the question the public posed, why are you pouring all these resources into Gaza, Lebanon, etc., is a valid one. It's a long-standing Iranian policy, so one kind of takes it for granted. But what is Iran's stake in being the center of the axis of resistance, as they call it? It's a really tricky issue to explain simply. So let me try to make it simple. <laughs> but apologies if my answer is longer than you'd like. It definitely goes back to the Iranian revolution, the ideological nature of the revolution being very anti-American and many of the regime's leaders seeing the role of the United States and by extension Israel's presence in the region as being connected to imperialism and colonialism. So there is that ideological worldview hanging there. And then a second layer emerges from Iran's experience during the Iran-Iraq war. It felt very much surrounded and isolated by its neighbors. And of course, the West sort of piled in and supported Saddam Hussein in this eight-year-long war. And through that experience, they came out having survived and the revolution relatively consolidated. They began to develop relations with non-state actors, recognizing that there weren't too many states in the Middle East that were feeling comfortable with the Islamic Republic and its radical Islamic political system. And so they strengthened their ties and nurtured their ties first with Lebanon's Hezbollah group. And over four decades, they found opportunities in weak states to also develop relations with political groups, military groups. And it turns out over the years, these sort of hodgepodge of groups in multiple countries, ranging from Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, the Palestinian territories, and Yemen, have broadly come together as the axis of resistance. And they're not necessarily ideologically connected by religious faith, but they're ideologically connected in their opposition to Israel and the role of the United States in the West. And it helps protect Iran. The presence of these groups around Israel and near American military bases in the region, they help protect Iran from being directly attacked within Iran. And that has been known as Iran's forward defense strategy. And is that Iran's forward defense strategy partly what was provoking, or at least persuading the Gulf states to go with the Abraham Accords in Bahrain, the UAE, and with the big question, until all this blew up, that Saudi seemed to be on the brink of also normalizing relations. How much of that was about Iran? Well, certainly the Iran security question is the one that hangs as a thread through all of these conflicts, including the Palestinian one. And it was a driver of normalization for the Bahrainis and the Emiratis with Israel. But there's an element to that that is broader, and it's tied to the role of the U.S. in the Middle East. And there's been a prevailing view among American partners in the region that the U.S. is deprioritizing the Middle East, focusing on its domestic dynamics and issues, focusing on China, and that has left a security vacuum. And so these countries have been looking 
to solidify their relations with the U.S. and see relations with Israel as the perfect way to do that. Right. And one of the other interesting guests at this conference in Riyadh was President Assad of Syria. And there's a certain irony in him signing up to a denunciation of bombing and human rights abuses. But he was there. Does that signal that he's now made it? He's safe. He's back in the fold. I think on the surface, yes, it looks like Assad is here to stay. He has survived the isolation and the efforts at unseating him. But I think his road back and the sort of rehabilitation of Bashar al-Assad isn't going to be warm and result in investment in Syria or strengthened bilateral ties across the Arab world. I think that this outreach to Bashar al-Assad was really led by the UAE, again, seeing that the severing of ties across the region that was not just with Syria, but also with Iran. There was a period of tension with Turkey. No direct dialogue worked against Emirati interests. And so they sort of paved the way at reconciliation. And it's underpinned by pragmatism and a security vacuum and looking to directly try to problem solve some of the challenges, which include also the export of Captagon, the drug being produced in Syria and being used to bankroll the Assad regime. And that has posed a sort of domestic challenge across many borders. Exactly. And ultimately thinking that over time through greater investment, you know, perhaps there could be a more balanced relationship with Syria that could serve Gulf interests. And maybe, you know, quite reductively, people have also thought that balanced relations would help Bashar al-Assad also diversify his relations away from Iran and Russia and other countries that are involved. Last question on the Gaza conflict itself, which has framed, you know, so much of these discussions. I should say we're talking on a Saturday. This won't go out till a Thursday. And I hesitate because we always feel to be a day away, an hour away from another really appalling thing happening that could reframe the whole conflict. But with that proviso, do you have a sense that the West's misgivings about what Israel is doing, which have always been there, I think, in the background, even though I don't think that many people here in Turkey would necessarily accept that, but that they're becoming more open and that you hear sometimes people saying Israel's window is closing in Gaza. Is that accurate? Or do you think actually, given Israel, how enraged Israel is, that they're going to keep going for quite a while? To be very honest, Gideon, I think it's really hard to say. I hope the window is closing because I really fear that too many lives have been lost at this point. And I think that ordinary Palestinians shouldn't be paying this price. But I do very much worry. I know that the window is closing from the West perspective, Mm. but I very much worry that in this climate in Israel today, which is extraordinarily defensive, that they will continue regardless and radicalize. And it is also taking place in the context of increasing violence in the West Bank and over a hundred people have died over there. At the same time, Prime Minister Netanyahu is under huge pressure, continuing the war. I mean, sorry to sound conspiratorial, but continuing the war is a sort of lifeline to his political survival. I don't think that sounds conspiratorial <laughs> at all. I mean, you know, the same thought has occurred to me that the day the war ends, the inquest in Israel begins and the beginning of Netanyahu's political career. Yes, yes. And next Saturday, there will be protests in Israel calling for Netanyahu's end, if you will. I think right now, if he doesn't get these hostages released, and we've heard, you know, much reporting that a deal is on the table, so why 
these poor individuals haven't been released is beyond me. So Western pressure doesn't necessarily guarantee a sort of cease and desist on the Israeli side. My biggest concern is that Israeli society and the Israeli political leadership is not ready to cease and desist because of the horrors of October 7th, but also because of the failures on their end of October 7th and a whole strategy that has effectively collapsed. And that is clear on the Palestinian side, but more broadly, Part of the discussion that they are not having that they will also have is that the Iran strategy has also failed. So the two pillars, Iran and Palestine, are collapsing and they need a whole new plan going forward. That was Sanam Vakil, director of the Middle East program at Chatham House in London, ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Please join me again next week. (laughs) 